Shooting it raw? Yes. Shooting it raw. Um, so just yesterday, my best friend uh, sent me a picture of the two of us together. This was years ago, probably 15 years ago. And I, um, it just made me so happy um, because it was such a happy memory. Um, and photography to me uh, means preserving memories. I'm pretty ruthless about calling, curating my, what photos I keep. Um, uh, because if it's not something I'm going to want to look back at later, I, I don't, I don't care to keep it. But when you have photos that call up really vivid memories of things, may, they may not all be happy, but vivid memories of things that you want to remember, that's what photography means to me. Now I'm not a great photographer. If I were a great photographer, uh, photography might be a little bit more wrapped up in beauty because I definitely by the work of others and their photos are beautiful and can be appreciated memory or not because they're gorgeous pieces of art my photos are not like that so yeah perfect amazing uh celeste headley uh, i'm saying your name correct celeste headley yep thank you so much for joining me on the podcast shooting it raw and over the next hour um, I'm going to essentially learn from you. We're going to the school of Celeste and uh, I'm, I'm in class. Um, so I'm really curious to, to, to hear you out. Thank you for your patience. We had a bit of a hiccups with scheduling. I'm 13 hours ahead. I believe I, you're it's 10 AM right now. I'm, I'm just outside DC. DC. Okay. 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 So I'm in Hong Kong. So look, should we jump into your first image? I have no no idea what it is, and I'm really looking. It's basically you're taking me on a kind of journey, and then the listeners as well. This is this is great. So what I, I don't have know which is, one came to you for you first. Which one okay. do you have as the first one? It's the amygdala. The amygdala. Yeah. Yeah, so the amygdala, um, obviously an import, really important part of our brains. Um, it is the oldest evolutionary it's part of your brain. It's like this little almond-shaped nugget right at the top of your spine, buried deep inside the brain, right? Because the way the brain evolves is that the, the very interior of it is the oldest part and all the outer folds get newer and newer, right? Mm -hmm. So it's inside the cerebral hemisphere. It, it's an emotional part of your brain. That's not surprising. We are emotional and social thinkers. But the reason that this is really important to me is because the amygdala, it, it, there's so much left in the amygdala that is remnants of the species we used to be that is no longer helpful. <laughs> mm -hmm. In other words, the amygdala tends to see everything through threat and fear. Mm -hmm. um, and it's constantly reacting as though it were under attack. That was right. probably super important when we were predated on. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not important anymore. And you get these amygdala hijacks mm -hmm. where you get this um, overwhelming emotional response. Now, 
it would be great if those were rare, but what has happened now is we have gotten to a space where we have started to view not other other races as threats um, mm-hmm. and other religions as threats, but even other political parties as threats, mm-hmm. meaning mm-hmm. that we are having these amygdala reactions, these fear of assault and attack and mm-hmm. um, fear freeze uh, reactions to even a, an opposing political opinion. Right. And that's why I put it in here because it's everywhere. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> good morning. <laughs> okay. So just, just for the listeners, because the, the podcast is ridiculous in the sense that we respond to images and theater of the mind. I kind of have to give some kind of anchor. So, so the, basically it's, it's more of a diagram or it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a diagram of a brain by itself. It's kind of like, imagine from a brain the bottom up. Yeah, that's yeah. been sliced, right? Yeah, and it's so it's just, it's like it's basically it's a graphic, and uh, the the brain is in gray and white and black, and then uh, it's got these two as you described almond shapes that are highlighted in yellow, and beneath that are these kind of other smaller shapes in very bright green. And underneath that, there's a text which has the amygdala, two almond-shaped areas hugging the center of the brain near the front, tends to become active when people dig in their heels about a political belief. Photo courtesy <laughs> of USC, Dorn Seif's Brain and Creativity Institute. Uh, Celeste, who are you and what are we doing? Like what? Um, so, so as a person who has dealt with anxiety and, and you know, I'm a human being living in the world today, because of COVID, because of life, because of all that stuff, of course, and somebody who's aware of, of this kind of research and fascinated by uh, neuroscience and brain cognition, all that business, um, fight or flight, why are we starting so strongly? So, I mean, this has become such a focus of my work. You know, I am a conversational expert, but over mm. the... Over the period of all these years researching what works and what doesn't in conversation, mm-hmm. um, it, I have to go back to the brain. I have to mm-hmm. figure out, Obviously, yeah. at least in terms of social neuroscience, why we react the way we do, because we sometimes react in very illogical ways, things that feel illogical. But when you understand the connection of your your neurology to your cognitive abilities, to your emotions, to your experiences and memories, to your physiology. When you begin to understand all those connections, things like why do we avoid conversation if it's so good at us? Why do we hate talking about race, right? Why Mm -hmm. all these deeper questions that we have um, suddenly became a little bit more understandable. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Mm -hmm. it requires digging in a little to a little bit of science. But I will say that one of my gifts is explaining complicated science in more understandable mm-hmm. ways. That's one of the things I do really well. So it's it's working out for me. <laughs> I love that you have the personal strength and self-knowledge and confidence to make that sentence. Because good for you. 
Thank you. <laughs> Run with it. I, mean, I love it. Yeah. I mean, we could go into my, my weaknesses if that, if you'd rather. Um, <laughs> I tend to be really, truly aware of those as well, but that happens to be something I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at. Yeah. And I, I'm, I am such a fan because just this notion of if there's an us versus them situation and it, it could be anything, right? Like us being baseball players or us being people who are left-handed or just a group of us in a room and then suddenly a them walks in it could be a woman in a room full of guys or um african-american who walks into a room full of caucasian people and then the first thing that kicks in is the amygdala yep exactly i'm talking to you like a muppet so please you're the expert take it away from there you know the thing of it is is that research shows us um and when we're talking about race particularly, we're, we're, who I'm usually talking to is a white person. Because not only because they're the majority, they're the dominant culture, at least in the United States, but also three reasons here. Also because they have the most power to make change in discussions mm-hmm. of race. They are the most likely to be under, uh, believed. They're the most likely to actually be rewarded for bringing up these issues. But the other one is what we're talking about now, which is that White people tend to avoid these conversations, even the very liberal minded, those who truly believe in equity and justice and are devoted to the idea that they want to bring about an anti-racist world. Even among those people, they have found that they will have a physical response. And in fact, people who have a lot of unconscious bias against African-Americans, which is not just blatant racist, it's a lot of people who are quite liberal minded. When they are even ex- have a brief exposure to seeing a black person's face, right? Even in a laboratory setting, in some cases, the, all they did was show them a, a yearbook photo of a black person. The threat set off their body's alarm system. It produced this physiological response as though they were in combat or there was an oncoming car, right? They got restricted blood flow to the heart. There's a flooding of the muscles with glucose because the body's releasing cortisol. That's the stress hormone, right? Really useful if you're being chased by a tiger, not so much if all you're doing is looking at a person of a black person. So you get this combination of the reduced blood flow, the amygdala jacks in, constrictions to your circulatory, your digestive system, a breakdown of muscle. That's what the cortisol is there for because it's trying to get you ready to either flee or fight or in some cases freeze. It triggers the amygdala to perceive threat and arm itself for vigilance within 30 milliseconds Mm -hmm. of seeing that face. 30 Mm -hmm. milliseconds. Now, if if you give your brain time to uh, reframe what you've just seen, if if you, number one, admit that you're having that reaction, become aware of it and mindful... And say, "Uh uh-oh, my body's having a reaction to this. Let me think this through. This is not logical. And you allow time for the outer edges of your brain to kick in, the more evolved and the adults in the room, right? You can actually inhibit. You you switch. You're kind of switching the amygdala Mm -hmm, off. You're mm -hmm, putting it mm -hmm. into inhibition mode. So this is like what I talk about all the time is having this conversation even with yourself. Okay. So so we have the reflex, right? Yes. That kicks in. And, um, but then you say, but you just need to kind of have the presence of mind to kind of give yourself a second to sort of step back or step down from that reflex. But wouldn't you say that we live in a world now where the majority of people who are, I would like to think are pretty good, 
And they think they are too. Most of us think we're good. Yeah. Wouldn't you say that for most people, most of the time, they're not um, taken hostage or hijacked by those 30 milliseconds that actually most people kind of step back, step that down. Or am I, am I being naive? I think you're being a little naive because okay. what we know is that, again, prejudice, prejudicial assumptions, stereotypes that we make about people are automatic. Mm-hmm. You know, 98% of our thought, neuroscientists say 98% of our thought is unconscious. Mm-hmm. And we don't know that it's happening. Mm. And what that means is that if you go through life saying, my conscious, my conscious identity is liberal and open-minded and accepting, by not being realistic about the fact that you do have stereotypes and prejudices living in your subconscious, you mm-hmm. are never going to be able to address them. Those you're not lifting up the rock and letting the creepy crawlies come out, right? Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. have to be honest with yourself about the the things that live in your unconscious mind that, you know, the biggest problems we have with prejudice is are are a result of unconscious bias, not Mm -hmm. blatant racism. And most, and let me put it this way, consider this for a moment, 50, less than 15% of American men are taller than six feet, but about 60% of CEOs are over six feet tall. And the mm. last time Americans elected a president under six feet tall was 1896. But if you ask mm. them, are you prejudiced? If you ask most Americans, do you have a prejudice in favor of tall people? They would say no. We give lower performance evaluations to people who carry extra weight. Doctors mm. prescribe medical procedures based on patients' race. Teachers still to this day call on boys more than girls. These mm. assumptions are not always about race. They're about all kinds of things. And they live in, yeah. And do I think that most people rethink it? No, because I don't think they admit that they're biased. <laughs> <laughs> Here, here's something that's very dis- disturbing to somebody who begins to put a toe in the pool that you swim in, is that if you read enough and, and get aware enough of what this is, you come to the kind of uncomfortable conclusion that free will kind of is an illusion that you kind of have to let go of sometimes. This, you know what I mean? Like it's it's kind of painful to think that like free will and and conscious and being and having a handle on our thinking, it's extremely slippery. It's this eel that's really hard to catch. I don't I don't know. That's just how I feel. I mean I mean I think that's a valid I think it's a valid concern. I mean, this is this has been the big argument, right? Like there was this huge debate about this between Michel Foucault and Noam Chomsky decades mm. ago. Do we have how much of our behavior is guided by our genetics, right? By our biology. Right, 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 and Michel right. Foucault, not surprisingly, was like, none of it. We are completely free. And Noam Chomsky was like, oh, not so much. Um, mm. You know, we have more control over our our brains than neuroscience might suggest at first, but you have to dig a little deeper and realize that neuroscientists have also discovered how you can change your mind. That there is, this is, there's this quality that they call neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. and essentially, okay. So let me explain this because to me, it's super exciting. Obviously I'm like dork about this stuff. You can barely sit still. I I know I can, I get all excited about it. So, I mean, imagine, I mean, you can imagine a brain right now, this slimy gray with, with little curvy lines carved into it. 
inside your brain are all of these neurons that connect with one another. So let's say, for example, that I do something super enjoyable and the, the part of my brain makes this connection because I have fun, mm-hmm. right? Now, if I play with my dog that way every day or maybe multiple times a day, I am then making that little roadway deeper yeah, and, yeah. and more familiar. And it means it's going to be even easier for my mind to immediately jump to happiness and fun, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we can actually, through repetition, through habit, we can literally carve new pathways into our brain. Mm-hmm. And there's ways that you do this. There's there's the where's ways to make them stronger, associate mm-hmm. them with positive emotions, right? For example, I tell people all the time, conversations are super good for you. They are. Mm-hmm. They just are. As long as you're not arguing or hostile, your that conversation is going to be good for you. So start associating with this positivity. Um, mm-hmm. Associate conversations about race as little tiny nudges toward anti-racism toward justice for the world right another thing is to involve all of your senses right there's no lasting change in your brain that doesn't involve your neuro nervous system so visualize it use your touch use your movement you know there's ways to make your your brain more plastic and that to me is super exciting and hopeful which is what we're doing right now and it's obviously yeah. the enthusiasm that you have is really uh, communicating. But we only have an hour and we have to move on to the next image. Isn't it crazy? Yes. <laughs> we have to keep ro- rolling. You're so fun. Let's just ima- imagine this as an amuse-bouche, right? Like if okay. somebody is, is super into this stuff, this is, a, this is, a, a, this is great. an appetizer so they can go and, and do some reading. I love the fact that you can't be like your energy is so infectious. I totally, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. So the next image I have is behind the, which is bonkers. Okay. Again. Um, okay. So this is not a graphic. It's a, basically it's this beautiful image. Okay. So it's a painting. It's, yeah. a, it's a painting. So it's underneath it. It says there's a title. It says behind the myth of benevolence, 2014 oil on canvas. And the painting is, just really incredible. So it basically, it's like, okay, how to describe this? On the, the back side is a painting of a woman, uh, maybe nude, seated at a bed. It's very almost like um, a kind of like a renaissance beautifully uh, made uh, uh, rendition of African-American women uh, with a headscarf sitting there kind of looking at the viewer but over her is draped a like a another canvas like a, a canvas of a man say of i don't know say maybe 2 or 300 years ago in terms of the the dress older gentleman probably white it's thomas jefferson it is thomas jefferson okay it is. I, yeah, so so speaking of biases by the way i'm not american so this is like oh who are these people very interesting okay so take it away it's a very, obviously, it's a very powerful image. This was, um, so, uh, so Titus Kafar painted this, um, I think, I think maybe 2014, or at least mm-hmm. that's when it was exhibited. Um, and he tells the story that at one point, someone described T- Thomas Jefferson to him as a benevolent slave owner. And he could not get this description, benevolent slave owner, out of his mind. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you have here is the, the, the way he has it draped is as though there was a, a, a formal p- painting portrait of Thomas Jefferson and it came loose somehow. Uh, okay. and, and so it kind of fell off and behind it, you see um, this portrait of, a, of an African-American, most likely enslaved woman whose expression looks as though she's been startled from her work, right? She looks mm-hmm. like you've surprised her. Um, and right. she's looking up and it's so powerful to me. Um, mm-hmm. And now in the United States, most people know the story of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Sally Hemings was the African-American enslaved woman, light skinned, actually about the, uh, the Sabbath, same skin color and amount of black heritage as I have um, that he raped for many, many, many mm-hmm. years, has many children with her. And of course, he chose not to even free his slaves at mm-hmm. his death, as opposed to George Washington. Uh, um, so Ty- Thomas Jefferson is a particularly sore spot for African Americans, because this is a guy, if you read his writings, he knew how wrong slavery was. Mm-hmm. He knew it. He mm-hmm. knew it was immoral. He knew that African Americans were human beings. Mm -hmm. Um, and he continued to do it anyway. So this idea that Thomas, that you can't, that such a thing can exist, that one can be a benevolent slave owner is exactly as ludicrous as to think that Thomas Jefferson had a consensual relationship with Sally Hemings. Of course he didn't. Mm -hmm. That's not consensual. That's she's even slaved her. That is rape. (laughs) Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. this portrait, it means so much to me and it hits me every time I look at it the, because he, he, without saying a word of, of shame, just absolutely through just the beauty of this image, he's getting to the heart of what we're really talking about here. Like mm-hmm. getting to the meat of the conversation, at least in the United States there, there's been slavery in many other nations, but here it was our peculiar institution and it was never, ever benevolent. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's, um, to put it mildly. Yeah, to put it mildly. And yet that person said to Titus, Thomas Jefferson was a benevolent slave owner, right? Like most of us would say, well, of course. And yet someone said to a black man that Thomas Jefferson was a benevolent slave owner. That to me is just, it it blows the mind. Let's bring it back to the amygdala, shall we? Mm -hmm. So how do you take it beyond that front first level, okay, which Mm -hmm. is the sort of the the first interpretation and go, go deeper into that because why don't you, you kind of share, because right now what I, what I really hear is your passion and the emotion and the feeling, but how do we translate that into a more, educational moment or, or sort of like learning moment or something, you know, for somebody really kind of understands beyond just the kind of the lesson of abhorring slavery, even though, for example, there is modern day slavery, but how do we, how do we make a bridge for people to listen and to sort of kind of go beyond like deeper? I'm not sure I understand the question, but I'll try uh, to answer it. And then can- <laughs> this is, this is how I interview. I kind of respond, and then the person says, "I think you're asking this. Maybe you you run with it." <laughs> so, this painting is about digging down to the truth. Okay. It, this painting is about being honest about history, mm-hmm. and that's true. Look, you're in Hong Kong, right? 
Mm-hmm. Think about all the things in Hong Kong's history that we really need to be honest about and tell the truth about before okay. we can begin to amend anything, before we can move forward. We have to tell the truth about things that have happened in our history. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I find that's true. Anybody, I think, can relate to that. And frankly, that's not even just about nations. That's in your own family. I mean, think of all the secrets that we keep in our own families and how it it prevents us from from having truly honest, authentic relationships with people when there's this unspoken history going on, when one person is allowed to believe things happened a certain way and everyone else knows it did not. That's as true in a in a romantic relationship as it is in a family, um, as it is in a nation. And mm-hmm. that's what this painting is about, is, is take pulling down that superficial cover and, mm-hmm. and revealing and exposing the truth underneath, even if it is, in this case, it's not, she's not ugly, but the truth of what's happening to her is. And it mm-hmm. means having the courage to, to pull off that covering and, mm-hmm. and look at our history and ourselves with mm-hmm. realism and honestly and authenticity. Uh, yeah, I hear you. And so how do you, what is your relationship to time and history then? Like, how do you interpret or understand your own place in time? I mean, again, I'm not sure I understand the question, but I will try to answer the thing I think you asked. Sure. Um, uh, my, you know, I, I am an, I am, I am Jewish and African American. And so mm-hmm. when I think about my own history and my ancestry, um, I, there's a lot of ugliness in my past. Mm-hmm. You know, my great grandmother was the first of our family on that side born free. And, and yet that means that my great, great grandfather was a, was a slave owner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my great, great grandmother was, okay. a, was an enslaved person, but I have to also grapple with the fact that, you know, she was attacked repeatedly by her slave owner, just the way Sally mm-hmm. Hemings was with Thomas Jefferson. That's tough. You know, I'm writing a book about my great grandmother right now. And I go through genealogy, for example, and th- my family's history cuts off before mm-hmm. the civil war. I can't track it. Mm. Uh, my family was not considered important enough. In fact, I go back a, a couple steps before 1865 and all it says is slave for mm-hmm. a female slave. That's it. Mm-hmm. No name, mm-hmm. no birth dates. Those records weren't kept. So my place in history, I feel a weight of, of history on my shoulders. And that's not just mm-hmm. for the black side of my family, the Jewish side of my family also, because um, Jews, when you're raised in uh, among uh, Jews, they constantly say, never forget, never forget, never forget. The, the message being, if we forget, what happened in world war two, we may repeat, it may happen again. We have to Mm. always remember that this is what human beings are capable of. Sure. Something that I never took seriously as a child. And now as an adult with all the things happening in the political world, I realize how true that was. Mm -hmm. And so when I say that I feel the weight of history, I mean, I feel the, the weight of the, the very, very, hard earned wisdom of my ancestors on my shoulders. Mm. And so I, I can't, I'm not just inventing a life and a legacy for myself. I, I have to honor and respect and carry forward their wisdom and experience as well. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot it, to carry in one head and on one sh- pair of shoulders. 
so you said you you're you're writing is it have you written many books or you're writing this is your first book no no i have it depends on how you count i have three mass market books i've written and then i have two ebooks and then a a shorter book that I wrote for broadcast professionals on interviewing and stuff. So a, a lot, many books. Okay. Um, so this would be like my fourth mass market right. book, but the first one that's really personal, uh, you know, I yeah. write nonfiction. Okay. So, and I, you know, I, it is a lot to carry, but it's also a, a, a gift. Mm-hmm. So my grandfather is very famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most famous composers America has produced. And oh, okay. I remember a lot of people trying to commiserate with me saying how, how tough that must be to be raised in a family with somebody who's that famous and is like a capital G genius. Right. And I just don't see it that way at all. For me, it's been such a, it's been liberating it, my whole life, I see this as not just a gift like he was amazing, because he was amazing, but also it's been personally liberating, right? Mm. I don't, there's no pressure on me to be a genius. We have that covered. Like, there's no, yeah, got it. I'm not going to be the most uh, accomplished person in my family. And that's freeing. You know, I don't have anything to prove. <laughs> um, so, wow, you know. No, just okay. Because so the podcast has been around for three years ish, coming on, and because of my interest goes where I invite the people onto the podcast who I'm like, oh, I wonder what this person's about, and I'm you know as a kind of a learning experience for myself because sometimes I get these like happy accidents where where my my guests will be, I'll be like, oh, so you've written some books? She goes, oh, yeah. How many have you written? And you know, I come from the world of writing. And she's like, oh, 400 and something. 400 and something. So the premise of the podcast is we're given, we're allotted a, a, a finite bucket of, sec- of seconds. And how do we make every second count? And And it's fascinating to me that you know, we've never met and what's coming out of your head is very portentous, like not pretentious, but portentous, like very big, very kind of like, it's like, it's it's this kind of this, this weight of history and, and responsibility and, and your own responsibility to your own history, your own legacy and and, and history and family and all this stuff. It's, 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 it's fascinating. It's inspiring. You seem very buoyant. And you don't seem weighed down by that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not weighed bound down by it. You think of it as a question or not. Maybe it's not a question. So how do you respond to what I just said? I I, I mean, I see that as, as lucky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm really lucky. I mean, mm-hmm. number one, I'm super lucky. My grandfather wrote really, really beautiful music. Mm-hmm. Um, and And he was a good person. Right. <laughs> right he is someone that i can truly be proud of i see your your last name headley and i don't recognize who your grandfather would be so his daughter was my mom so her married mm. name is headley his not okay. his my grandfather's name william grant still who's the dean of african-american composers okay and you know there's so much to be proud of mm-hmm. in all that he did there's like frankly, we have so many accomplished people in our family mm-hmm. that I'm super jazzed about being related to them. <laughs> yeah, that's I awesome. mean, I know. Awesome. Yeah, I I love 
mm-hmm. uh, my family. I mean, I have some stinkers like everybody else does. Everyone <laughs> has some um, people that are not, you know, pleasant or whatever it may be. Um, wow, you're part of a human family. Yeah, exactly. Exactly <laughs> correct. And for the most part, I've really lucked out. And, you know, I think the other thing is, is that my life has been like so many people's life has been tough. Life is hard. You Mm. know, you do not make it to age 50 without, you know, having been through some things. No, of course. Um, Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. And I think that it it makes me happier because, um, you know, it reduces the fear. Like, what are you going to do? I've been through it. It's happened. The Mm. worst happened. Mm. It happened already in like my 20s and 30s, you know, whatever it is. You know, I'll either get through it or I won't. And <laughs> that's the way that goes. Like That's yeah. the way it goes. Um, so on that happy note, should we go on to the next photo? <laughs> yes. Which one is next for you? Oh, Celeste. Oh, it must be great. my dog. I'm guessing it's my dog. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's co- his name is Seamus. Her name is Samus. Uh, uh, if Samus, you're a video sorry, game sorry. player, she's named after Samus Aaron, originally in ah, Metroid. Uh, yes, yes. Okay. So, okay. So, so the photo is—it's hard to know because the the the, the angle is a little bit skew. So, uh, first of all, somebody's holding on to the dog. Kind of. That's me. Kind yeah. of. Okay, you're holding on to. So, what kind of dog is this? She's a mix. She's mostly a Walker Coonhound. Nice, nice. Uh, on below her feet is it says it's a it's like a my doormat. Yeah, yeah. Hope you like dogs. Uh, you're just outside your house. It's probably summer in DC. Maybe uh, there's yeah. a plant. There's just a little plant. Could be a fig tree. You're wearing this nice blue dress. Uh, the dog uh, like Samus is looking up at the photographer with a nice sort of view, but almost saying like. What? Why? Why? What? Okay, so so take it away. So this has so many things that I that I love in it. Mostly my dog, who is just the mm. sweetest in the whole world. She is mm. seven years old. We rescued her um, from a shelter in Macon, Georgia, and she was oh. going to be put. She was going to be put down that day. Oh, like wow. she already. Yeah, and yeah, it says hope you like dogs because <sighs> then don't come in. <laughs> If you don't like dogs, mm-hmm, it's not mm-hmm. probably in the not right. How house many dogs for you. do you have in your house? I only have one, but when we bought this house, um, the dog across the street, who's named uh, Chaco, mm-hmm. uh, she and Samus bonded immediately, and they nice. are a bonded pair now. They are best friends. Um, so I often have two. Uh, okay. The plant that you see is my pepper plant. I mean, I live on the oh, east nice. coast nice. Of, of the U.S. But I grew up in Los Angeles, so in my mm-hmm. cooking, I use a lot of different kind of peppers, and they don't mm. always have them in the store here. <laughs> so I have to grow it. What them. kind of pepper is it? I think that's a poblano pepper. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be an ancho. Anyhow, I always have a whole bunch of pepper plants every summer. If you could see around me, I have five dogs in the house, and I have four yeah. cats. So ah, yeah. So you get it. I get it. Yeah, she's my heart. How do we convey the tragedy of of a dog? The tragedy of a of dog. a dog's life. Oh, you mean because it's short? Yeah, that's a hard lesson. So, for example, my daughter's eleven, and she's already lived through the death of about four of our animals, and they're all companion animals, they're all beloved pets, and so 
My personal dog, who is like probably like your Samus, is is Kafka. And Kafka's 17 right now, 16, 17, which is very old for a dog. So how do we wrap up what you had started with amygdala, then with a painting, and then now this image of Samus? How, what, what's the connection? So I'm going to tell you the story that this veterinarian shared on social media some years back. Um, because uh, this vet had a family come in, including this little six-year-old boy, and they had to put their dog, their family dog down. And mm-hmm. the six-year-old said, and I'm quote, I'm paraphrasing here. The six-year-old said something like, well, but when we're born into this world to learn how to love other people and, and live and be good, right? But um, dogs already know how to do that. So they don't have to stay mm-hmm. as long as we hear, we do. They're just here to show us how to do it. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's such an incredible core of truth to that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know compared to other animals we live a very short life we do live a very short life how do we grapple with the tragedy of our very short life mm-hmm. you live you know earlier you referred to um, making the most of every moment that's what you do and think about how well a dog does that i mean <laughs> think how easy it is to make a dog just filled with joy it is so rare to see a human adult filled with joy. Mm. It almost never happens. And yet for dogs, it happens all the time. Dogs who are well cared for. So in terms of making the most of every day, you know, they live shorter because they really live life to its fullest extent. When they are mm. eating, they are loving that food. <laughs> when they are getting scritched, they are in that moment mm-hmm, loving mm-hmm. having their belly scritched. They are absolutely present and ready to, they don't care if they look stupid. They don't give any thought whatsoever to whether they smell or not. They are just Mm -hmm. in the moment. So riddle me this, how does a dog's relationship to history compare to ours then? So, you know, the more scientists are able to study this, the more we are able to extend our reliance on dogs further and further back in our history. You know, mm-hmm. at one point, Homo sapiens was not the only human species, right? I of mean, course, of course. There were several different human species. And it's been a really, it's been a, a mystery for a very long time how Homo sapiens survived. Because mm-hmm. Neanderthal was better. <laughs> they were more resilient. They were stronger bigger brains did you did you hear the um the the one one hypothesis that i think is quite uh appealing is the idea that neanderthals were just kind of assimilated really out of through time yeah because we have um neanderthal dna good old good old-fashioned fucking we got yes but really it was homo sapiens that came out on top (laughs) i mean the vast majority of our dna is homo sapiens yeah yeah for sure for Um, sure So, and there were several other human species that did not make it, but Homo sapiens is really fragile. Okay. We are quite fragile. We're not particularly fast. Mm. A change of temperature of maybe 10 degrees can make us uncomfortable. We don't have a thick hide. Nope. We don't have tough claws. Um, We can run a long distance for a long time, but Mm -hmm. we can't run faster than most creatures. Cats can outrun us, right? Yeah. But, you know, we listen, give credit where credit is due. I mean, like humans can really run far. Like we can. We can. We can run for a long distance. Elephants can go further. 
And frankly, it doesn't matter how far you can run if the wolf is going to catch up to you in the first hundred feet. Okay. <laughs> right? Sure. Sure. So maybe bring this back to dogs. Let me bring this back to dogs. <laughs> One of the reasons why we survived, the main reason why we survived is because Homo sapiens put a lot of our evolutionary energy into becoming the most advanced communicators and collaborators on the planet which meant you were mm-hmm. never just messing mm-hmm. with one human being. You were always messing with more, right? There's yep. always a way for us to figure out who has what skills and talents and coordinate them in the way when we can do things we could not possibly do, like take down a bison, mm-hmm. right? Of course. But of the course. other thing is that we have empathy and we're able to establish empathic bonds. And so we found mm-hmm. these canines who are also extremely sensitive to emotional landscapes Mm -hmm. right and it was a match made in heaven right Mm -hmm. we found each other's talents and skills and we began to immediately form empathic bonds we have the same response to seeing a puppy almost as we do to seeing a human baby yep yep. and um and very very early on we established these strong emotional bonds with our with our dogs and they helped us what about this idea of Let's wrap it back. Let's tie it back to the um, to the amygdala one, right? Fight or flight. The first reaction of of being faced with a, let's say, an opportunistic carnivorous predator within our midst, but slowly but surely became part of our group, right? Right. In, in the sense of like, here we have this dog that at first we're kind of suspicious of, and theory of and then but slowly but surely assimilated and became part of our pack yes so using your brain in terms of what you know how would you connect the importance of that connection say with samus in your life in your daily life in terms of the deeper needs that is it she or he she She. (laughs) samus aaron the character samus aaron is a girl which is another very interesting story, but I won't go into it. So dogs are so have evolved along with us and they have mm-hmm. evolved in ways to meet our needs so mm-hmm. efficiently that if I'm having a tough day and I come home and start scritching my dog, yeah, that's making my dog feel good, but it's also lowering my cortisol level and lowering yep. my heart rate and, and lowering my stress. Um, mm-hmm. We have evolved together through a communication that did never required language. You know, so it's, it is ironic that here we are homo sapiens. We, we evolved in a way that risked our own deaths in order to have language and, and speech by which mm-hmm. I mean that in order to articulate. Right on cue. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. In order to articulate well, That's great. our larynx had to move further down our throat, which is the reason why we sometimes choke, you know? Mm-hmm. So, this language that has been just crucial and a survival skill for us. And yet our, our greatest friend has no shared language with us, but they do have a shared language. They have an emotional and social language that we share. Mm. Mm. Um, The semiotician in me would say that we share a lot by way of language in terms of the meaning that we ascribe to a dog's look, like in this photograph where she's looking. I mean, it's funny because this image is very meaningful for you because you chose it and you curated it. And the expression is 
like it's really funny because within the the photo the um, it's like her her like what what is she telegraphing to the phot- photographer you mean like if if that is a symbol if that if she is actually uh, using a kind of visual language, or you're you're projecting that in terms in terms of why you chose this image. What is she communicating? So for me, she has a slight smile on her face. Samus is mo- like I said, mostly Walker Coonhound. Okay, but she has a little bit of Pibble in her, and Pibbles are famous for their smiles. They're those dogs with the big, broad smiles, and ah, she okay. has just enough in her that she smiles. Mm-hmm. This, when I look at this, this is a, a, this is my dog smiling. Like she is content. And this is like, welcome to my house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I she hope you abs- like dogs. <laughs> yep. Hope you like dogs. Cause this is my house. Like she knows she is part of a, a crucial part of this family. She knows her place yeah. in this family. She is secure in it. Um, sure. And she is that this is the welcome you would get at my house. Like she is like happy. She knows she's loved here. Yeah. And, I, and I really appreciate that this is what you're putting into the world. You mean? Like, you're, you're telling to the world, hey, everyone, everyone, like, if you want to learn how my brain functions, you have to accept that the, the guardian to the gateway, to the doorway to come in is this being who is going to... You kind of have to go through her first. Probably. Okay. To lick you. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that sentence yes. in my ears, I'm going to go on to the next photo. It's crazy how fast these, these conversations go. Whoa, hard left. Yes, this is a hard left. Speaking of front doors. Okay, so in a totally different emotive um, um, step, the last photo is uh, a photograph of what's probably a cafe or something. Uh, it's just a close, close-up shot of this sign that's kind of this nicely aged, kind of a little bit um, stylized, just a sign in, a, in, a, in a, like a door, like a, a shop or something. It says, sorry, we're closed. Uh, it's a it's a color photograph. In the reflection of the glass of the door, you can just make out what is probably a summery scene. I guess could be Brooklyn in the background. I have no idea. Sorry, we're closed. But you can see that it's still light out, right? It's not. Yep. Nighttime. Okay, what's going on, Celeste? So some of the most the best advice I gave myself was to come up with a. A time of to come up with my sh- my shop's hours. Okay. <laughs> like when does the store, ah. the Celeste store, open and close? Interesting. When do I flip that sign over to closed? Interesting. And I am done with business and done with work. And I, to for me to think of it that way to preserve <clears throat> and protect my private time, my my time when I live as opposed mm. to work is easier for me to do when I think of it as a physical object, as me flipping that sign over, because that is not negotiable. Right. Right. The sign's over. We're closed. You're setting really firm boundaries. Yeah. It's like, it's not an issue of morality. It's just like, hey, you missed, you know, come back tomorrow. You Mm -hmm. know, this isn't like, I don't like you. That's why I'm ignoring your email or your phone call or whatever it may be. It's like, you came too late. It were closed. Mm. Okay. <laughs> um, 
Um, see What's tomorrow. going on? What's going on, Celeste, that, that, that this is um, such um, an important lesson that you're putting out into the world? So the second um, book that I wrote was mm-hmm. called Do Nothing. And it, it was not the book I was intending to write second. Oh, interesting. Um, but what happened was I got so busy and overwhelmed in my life. I was just going, going, going all the time. I was traveling for work like four or five times a month. Mm-hmm. And I I broke. Right. I mean, I just broke. I couldn't sustain it. Mm. I was irritable with my son, who's my favorite person in the world. Mm-hmm. I was, I never had time to walk my dog. My dogs, it was a different dog at that point, but she started gaining weight, you know, and I, I, I wrote that book because I was trying to find solutions for myself. Right. And over the course of that, the research for that, I ended up writing a book. Yeah. But I also started clearly defining and articulating my own boundaries and you know it's especially true in jobs like mine and and i assume in yours where you are engaged in social contact all the time and you are making emotional connections with so many people you can very quickly get burnt out by that it's fulfilling and it's wonderful but it's also incredibly taxing Mm -hmm. and so for me especially and i'm sure for a lot of other people who have similar experiences it's very important to create those boundaries and and to protect them with respect, without rancor or anger, mm-hmm. but just with respect. We're you know we're closed. So why don't you give somebody um, like you know since we're at the at the school of Celeste, what is what? How do you? So for example, have you heard of the book um, "The Power, no, the Courage to Be Disliked"? Yes. Okay. So so how would you communicate? This important lesson of of treating yourself like a shop that has operating hours. So, the reason that it became a full length book is because it it it's so deeply ingrained, and this is not just Americans. It's deeply ingrained in many cultures around the world, including a number of Asian Asian cultures. This believing that identity is work, mm. that who you are is what you do that that is what gives you value mm-hmm. and that's wrongheaded. Your work is just what you do to get your food, shelter, and water. <laughs> and um, then you go and do all, all the things that make you, you. So, so in terms of um, the, I know it's, it's not, it's not very scientific necessarily, but uh, you know, in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of need, the idea that you kind of need to satisfy the, like the food, shelter, and clothing sides you know, of your survival before you can start looking into these other, not, not to say they're not important, but these, you know, other areas. So as a person, as you know, myself, as a person who I'm greatly affected by my status as a working person, you know, so that when I'm not working, I, you know, it, it definitely does shake me pretty intensely and it totally raises the fight or flight reflex right like when i'm not earning a living i'm definitely in survival mode and so don't you need to have a certain don't you need to have operating hours or kind of like don't you need to have a shop that is functioning to actually be able to say okay hey you know i have i have work hours the shop's closed yeah i mean of course There'd be no point in having an open and close sign for a shop that nobody was mm-hmm. going to. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that wasn't sure. making any money, obviously. But 
the first thing I'll say is that the hierarchy of needs has been updated and, and needs updating. It's, there's a real question about whether humans actually behave in a hierarchy form format. And part of that is because that original idea of that pyramid that Maslow created doesn't account for the fact that our needs change based on our situation. Sure. So Celeste at the period of her life, when she was living paycheck to paycheck had a very different set of needs than Celeste now who has the absolute privilege of being able to close that shop door earlier than ever. And I don't work on Wednesdays. Wednesday is not a work day for me. So um, mm. that would not have been possible for Celeste in her thirties and even into her forties. Mm-hmm. Um, our needs change all the time. Sure. But the fact of the matter is, is that for all human beings, all of us, there are certain, there is an innate nature. Like mm-hmm. there is such a thing as human nature. Michel Foucault was wrong about that. Okay. Um, there are things that are common to all human beings. And obviously the first one is that we, we need food, shelter, and water. Mm. That's just survival. And what you're talking about, getting a job, that's what a job is intended to do. That's the way our society is set up, is to, to earn you food, shelter, and water. After that's satisfied, the number one need that a homo sapiens has is for belonging. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number one. Okay. And your job doesn't help you with belonging. You know, whenever a, a boss says to you, we're a family, that's crap. You're not a family. <laughs> <laughs> families can't fire you mm. without warning mm. at the drop of a hat. You know, families don't negotiate whether they're going to give you health care or not. You know, the, your, your, your job is not your family. Sure. So I would say as we, I know we're wrapping up here, but I would say, you know, this is a great place to end because it's about finding your own priorities, establishing your own boundaries, your own limits, not based on the your amygdala thinking, mm-hmm. not based on what you perceive as a fear or a threat, not based on dishonest histories, but mm-hmm. like really being honest with ourselves, knowing who we are and what it is we actually need at that moment. That's sort of, for me, that has been the key. And dogs. And dogs. Oh, Celeste, you wrapped it up so beautifully. I mean, like, (laughs) it couldn't have been more, you know, you've done this before. I loved it. That was beautiful. Oh, good. I'm glad. Thank you so much. Wow. This has been, I think, in terms of the feeling, you know, it's like how, how, no, okay, no podcast uh, conversation ever felt like it's been dragging, ever. But this one, it's like, it's just poof. Over fast, yeah. Amazing. Oh, good. I'm glad because we were talking about complicated stuff. I know, I know. And in its own way, it's kind of like, it was like a dog's life. It was it was too short. It was beautiful. I'm so glad. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Shooting it raw? Yes. Shooting it raw.